973. 973 in those Bibles there uh, in your rows. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible as a gift from us. So even if you need a, an updated version, perhaps, um, then uh, feel, feel free to grab that as a gift, as a gift from Redemption Hill. Galatians 2, we'll be working through verses 11 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 21. I want to read these verses to get us started this morning. Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ." So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What I want you to do this morning is take those verses, verses 11 through 21, and I want you to, to lay over them a picture of a courtroom. Because this terminology that we find here in Galatians 2 really gives the picture, the imagery of a courtroom. Now, I want you to imagine that uh, you are in the place of the accused being tried for crime. Perhaps we can use a local example to help maybe you picture what's going on. I mean, you are not just a simple, you know, tiny little transgressor. You've come into the courtroom because you have a parking ticket in Somerville. Okay, the city of Medford is not as, as dangerous with parking tickets, but if you're in Somerville, like, don't 
be past like 30 seconds over your time or you're going to get hit with a ticket, okay? That's just a little public service announcement from Tanner. Not that I would be speaking from experience or anything, but just to let you know, uh, that's how it works in Somerville. But, but, but you're not in there for, for a ticket or a speeding ticket or running a stop sign or anything. Not that you would ever do that. But, but you're in there for a crime spree, all right? You have been just raining crime down on the city, much like Whitey Bulger. You know the story of Whitey Bulger, right? Born in Dorchester, grew up in, in South Boston. And, and so uh, Whitey Bulger was a criminal early on in his life. At the age of 14, uh, he was arrested for stealing and then, uh, you know, forgery and, and all of these things by the, his, his, through his juvenile years. And then uh, as he grew up, he accelerated his level of crime. He conducted a series of bank robberies all the way from here to Indiana, and he was charged uh, with, with that crime, sentenced to prison. He spent some time even in Alcatraz. That 25-year that sentence was reduced to nine years. So we all know now that after he got off after those nine years, he went back into his life of crime through the late 70s, through all of the 80s. Whitey Bulger was Boston's uh, most notorious criminal. He was finally caught after spending about 10 years on the FBI's most wanted list, at sometimes rising to number two under Osama bin Laden. He was finally apprehended in 2011 and now charged with all kinds of accounts of criminal activity. I'll just read a few of them for you. Racketeering, extortion, conspiracy to murder, conspiracy to commit extortion, conspiracy to commit money laundering, narcotics distribution, and 19 counts of murder. Now, just a little less than two months ago, Whitey Bulger stood before a judge in Boston and received the verdict guilty. Guilty of most all of these counts of criminal activity. But can you imagine just for a moment, and what if this was you? What if this was all of, all of your sin, all of your crime? What if, what if all that was laid down on you, and, and just before the sentence was dropped, someone in the back of the courtroom stands up and, and it says, hey, he didn't do it, I did it. I'm the one that's guilty for this crime. You put his punishment that you think he deserves, you put that on me. It would be a radical moment in the courtroom, would it not? What's going on in Galatians 2 is this very thing. What we find in the gospel is that Jesus has stood up and he has taken our punishment, our verdict, and he's placed it on himself. And so as we work through Galatians 2 this morning, I want you to consider this great reality of justification, what Christ has done for us and then I want you to, to ask yourself the question, if that has happened for you, then what is your response to this great work and grace of Christ? This morning, I want us to think about Christ for us and Christ in us. 
What I want to argue is this. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can live in the power of Christ in us. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can live in the power of what Christ is doing in us. So number one, recognize the truth of what Christ has done for you. We're going to see this in verses 16 and 20 primarily. What has Christ done for you? Well, we want to, to read this verse again and then ask a series of questions to unpack exactly what it means. All right, so, so verse 16, Paul is writing, referring to himself and Peter. He's saying, hey, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what does it mean to be justified? Let me just put it quite strongly. If you do not understand what this word means, justification, you don't understand Christianity. I don't know any other way to say it than that. Like if you don't get this, you don't get Christianity. It's why Martin Luther would say, I love this, this is the truth of the gospel, referring to the doctrine of justification. This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. How do you like that? So, so today, this is my attempt, and it's our attempt week in, week out at Redemption Hill to beat this into your head, all right? So, so here we go. What is, what is justification? This is from our statement of faith. All right? You can see it online if you've been to one of our Connections classes. You've heard this. We've talked about this. Justification is God's gracious and full acquittal of sinners who believe in Christ from all sin. All of our sin. Think about your sin, all of your sin, just this week. It's God's gracious and full acquittal of sinners who believe in Christ from all sin through the propitiation that Christ has made. So remember, justification is a legal term. To condemn someone is to declare them guilty and deserving of full punishment for their wrongdoing. Just like what has actually happened to Whitey Bulger, who will receive his sentencing next month, either the 13th or the 14th, I believe. So he's, he's been uh, condemned as, as guilty, and he is going to receive the punishment for all of his wrongdoings, his transgressions, his sins, his criminal activity. So that is what it means to be condemned. What it means to be justified then is to be declared not guilty and, and, and not deserving of punishment, judgment, and, um, and, and any kind of wrath. But it is then deserving of pardon and forgiveness. I hope you see that this is what has happened in the gospel. For those who believe in Christ, they have been acquitted. 
You have been let off the hook. You have been forgiven of all your sins. Check this out. This is radical, by the way. Forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. Counted righteous because of what Christ has done. And and how is this possible? How could we be let off? How could we be acquitted? It is clearly because of the propitiation that Christ has made. What does this mean? Propitiation is referring to the, the sacrifice of Christ by which he bore our sin and absorbed the wrath of God in our place. So God, because he is holy and because he is just, just can't wink his eye at sin and say, oh, it's no big deal. You really haven't offended me. You really haven't gone your own way. You haven't really fallen short of my glory. Everything's all good. Let's just sweep that sin under the rug, okay? The moment that God does that, he ceases to be God. So God must deal with our sin, and that's why he sent Jesus to, as Hebrews 9 says, deal for sin once for all. Our sin no longer has to be dealt with because Christ dealt with it when he came, lived a perfect life, died a cruel death in our place. So Jesus is the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. On the cross, he substituted himself for you. Think about that. You deserved the judgment. You deserved the, the verdict, guilty. You deserved the sentencing of condemnation. But Christ was our substitute. He is our substitute. So that now we can be justified. We can be a short definition of justification. We can be declared righteous in the sight of God. This is what justification means. Now, don't miss this. The the doctrine of justification hangs on two great realities, okay? One is the fact that God is holy and righteous. The other is that we are not holy, nor are we righteous. So what are we to do about this? Which begs the question, how can someone be justified? And so Paul, in very clear terms, is going to say in verse 16, you can look back at it, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So works of the law refer to, the, to, to keeping the law of God, the intentions of God, the will of God in, in totality. And this is, as you know, how many people approach God. I'm going to seek to appease God by doing enough good things, by manufacturing enough goodness in myself so that when I stand before God one day, he will accept me on the basis of being good enough, being a good enough person. And so let me just say, if that's you this morning, like if you think that's going to work out in your favor when you stand before God, before the holiness of God, the glory of God let me just say it's not going to work. It's not going to work out because we can never be good enough. Run into this all the time. Every other major world religion other than biblical Christianity, like like really sticking to the Bible, what the Bible says, they're going to have some kind of answer that says 
It's really about what we can do to earn our way to God and his approval and, and to spend eternity with him. It has to be through our own merits. I met someone who is Baha'i this week. I have not met a lot of Baha'i people. Okay, I've talked to more Jews and more Muslims and, and more um, supposedly Christian people who are still trying to earn God's favor through their own works of righteousness, but I haven't met many Baha'i people. But, but this was his answer as well. At the end of the day, what is he trusting in? Why would God accept him into his presence? It's, it's through his own works that God would eventually, hopefully, hopefully let him in. And so this is why the, the article on justification continues, and it says that this is all through the propitiation that Christ has made, not for anything wrought in them or done by them. We can never produce enough good works. We can never do enough to earn God's favor. A person is not justified by works of the law. A person is justified through faith in Christ. So then it goes on, our, our, our article on justification goes on to say, it's on account of the obedience and satisfaction of Christ that they receive and rest on him and his righteousness by faith. So what does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to place your faith in, the, in the, the work of Christ, the righteousness of Christ? You can sit here in your seat this morning and you can understand what I'm saying. Hey, when I stand before God one day, it's not gonna be on the basis of my works. Oh, it's on the basis of what Christ has done. And you can understand that. You can even approve of that. But until you trust in that, until you accept that wholeheartedly and throw your life down upon that truth, that reality, and surrender to that, your faith is really not faith at all. So faith is trusting wholeheartedly in what Christ has done through his sinless life, which is why we, part of the reason why we accept the virgin birth of Christ, born not as we were in sin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born sinless, lived sinless. And why is this so important? Why is this so crucial? Because Christ, his active obedience, every time he said no to sin, was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. All of that was necessary so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. So it's not just that Jesus takes on my sin and unrighteousness on the cross, but he also gives to us, the theological term is imputes to us, imputation. He imputes to us his righteousness. So when you're reading the Gospels and you see how perfect and sinless Jesus is, you should be immensely, eternally thankful that it was his sinless life for you. And it was his selfless death for you. And it was his glorious resurrection for you in your place. The Galatians had heard this before. Because if we flip back, flip back to Acts chapter 13. It's a long sermon. I can't read all of it for you this morning. But, but Paul, when he was in Galatia, and by the way, everywhere Paul went, this was the message that he was preaching, what the cross was really all about. And so in Antioch of Pisidia, he's going to say these words starting in verse 38. Here you go. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, speaking to 
a Jewish audience. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, don't miss that phrase, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes, by faith, who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. So, 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 so step back and, and track with me here, okay? The, the people that Paul was talking to were people who were trying to keep the law. They were trying to be good in God's sight. But what Paul is communicating to them is that that law is never going to free you. It's going to show you your flaws, all right? We say this last week. I'll say it again. The law is, is perfect, right, good, true. There's glory in the law because the law reflects the character of God. It reflects his intention for us, but salvation can never come through the law. And, and oh, by the way, the Old Testament never says that it does. This is what people who misinterpreted and misapplied the, the, the law were saying. Hey, we have to do this, and we'll add a bunch of more rules to it so that we can win God's favor. And so Paul says there's no freedom in that. There's only freedom through what? Believing in what Christ has done. Through him and by him, this is how we have justification in God's sight. So, so look at what happens in verses 42 and 43. I love this. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So I pray, okay, and I'm praying like this all the time, that what happens here when we preach the gospel, whether it's me or John or whoever else stands up here and opens God's word and says these same things to you in different ways every single week, I'm praying that this is the response. Hey, give me more of that. Tell me more. Preach that same sermon to me because I'm wrestling with this. I'm, I'm chewing on this. I really wonder if this is what I need so perhaps that's some of you this morning, you're new to Christianity, maybe you're, you're old to Christianity, but you've never heard the real deal as it's just laid out in scripture. And maybe some of you are verse 43, I mean, you're ready to believe. You're coming from a different background, you're coming from a different system, and yet you're seeing that, okay, for me to be justified, yeah, it, it, makes, it makes no sense that I could ever be righteous enough in God's sight. So God did through Christ what I can never do for myself. So if that's you today and you know that and you want to spend eternity with God, then believe in Christ. If you want to have an abundant life now, believe in Christ. This is how we are justified in the sight of God. And where was justification accomplished? The answer is the cross. Romans 5, 9 says that having we been, been justified by his blood, the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf is the basis for our justification. And this is then what verse 20 uh, continues to tell us in Galatians 2. Flip back to Galatians 2. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Are you ready for this? Who loved me and gave himself for 
me. I hope that you will let these tiny little phrases and these two-letter words, personal pronouns here, just like fall on your heart and get all up into your business, all right? Loved me, gave himself for me. So it is true that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for a people, okay? He died for all people who would believe in him, the church, his people. He died for all of us. And at the same time, he died for us as individuals. So my question to you is, do you personally embrace, like wholeheartedly embrace, appropriate the gift of God, the grace of God to you in an intensely personal way? I mean, are you feeling that, that when you sing about the cross, man, Jesus shed his blood for me. He lived a sinless life for me. He gave himself voluntarily. After sweating drops of blood in the garden, he, he gave himself for me. This is what my man Octavius Winslow called the holy egotism of the Bible. Everywhere you see a personal pronoun, just Throw this into your daily Bible reading, okay? Everywhere you see a personal pronoun, just put your name right there beside it. Jesus loved Tanner. He gave himself for Tanner. Man, that is mind-boggling truth. And what that does, hopefully, is this. It, It shows me how great God's affections are for me. Have you ever been loved before? Have you ever truly been loved There's something radical about receiving love and to to, to know what it's like to, to, to be loved by someone so greatly. No one has ever loved you like God has loved you. But not only does it let you know how great God's affections are for you, but then when you see that, it should stir your affections. It should fuel your affections and love back to God. So Christ has done all of this for us on the cross. And this is, this is why we just believe with all of our hearts that theology matters, okay? Like theology, doctrine, the Bible, it really, really matters because eternity hangs on our understanding of these truths and our personal belief and acceptance of these truths. If you want eternal life and if you want abundant life now, it only comes through the work of Christ on your behalf on the cross. So, recognize the truth of what Christ has done for you and then when you realize what Christ has done for you, live in step with the gospel because Christ is in you. Live in step with the gospel because Christ is in you. This is where we get into, okay? This is so important. 
to understand. This is where we get into the indicatives of Scripture and the imperatives of Scripture. Now, what is an indicative? Some of you that have had English lately or you remember this from grade school, perhaps you're an English major, an English teacher, you know that an indicative is a statement of fact. It's an assertion. It's a proposition. Hey, this is true. An imperative, then, is guidance, direction, commands. Now, the order is so important in the Bible, and this is so crucial for you understanding how to live out your Christian life, okay? Because everything that we do for God, the imperatives that we keep, are built on the indicatives of the gospel, this is how it is. This is how Paul structures his letters throughout the New Testament. This is, oh, by the way, what we see even in the Old Testament. All the, all, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Well, have you read the Ten Commandments lately? Does it start with, you shall have no other gods before me? No. No. It starts with, I am the Lord your God. Who? brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That, my friends, is an indicative. Thanks, Joe. That's an indicative by which then, in light of this, in light of this great reality of what God has done for us in working his great redemption, now we love him. Now we have no other gods before him. Now we don't make any graven images. Now we, uh, you know, yeah, I do remember the Ten Commandments, by the way, but it, you, you, get the, you, get the, you get the point, right? I'm not going to recite all ten. <laughs> so, so, so if this is true, if, if justification is based on the work of Christ, the righteousness of Christ for us, his work on the cross, then what should the gospel compel us to do? I want to give you four things that arise up out of Verses 11 through 21. Number one, we should keep in step with the gospel. The gospel compels us to keep in step with the very same gospel. And how do we see this? Well, look back in verses 11 through 13. Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, okay, Cephas is Peter, okay, one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, the rock on which Christ will build his church, the primary spokesman for the disciples, the primary leader of the church of Jerusalem, the one who was primarily preaching the gospel, and many, many people were getting saved in the book of Acts, one of the two main characters in the book of Acts. Pretty important person, we would all agree. Now, Cephas gets out of step with the gospel because Paul says, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. What did Peter have going on? Well, it says, for before certain men came from James, from Jerusalem, coming from a Jewish background, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself because he feared the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So you see what Peter is doing? Hey, uh, Gentiles, you're clean. The food you eat is clean. He knew this. He has this vision in Acts 10. Hey, it's not, it's not on the basis of what we eat. It's not on the basis of even circumcision that we are accepted by God. It's only on the righteousness of Christ within frees us up to eat whatever 
God puts before us that we do by faith, all right? So, so it's no longer about food and all of this to be accepted by God. Peter still believed that, but we see this theme of the fear of man creeping in again. It says that he feared those who came from Jerusalem, and he withdrew from them. When you sit down at a meal with somebody, there hopefully is an exchange of friendship, right? There, there is what the Bible calls fellowship going on when you share a meal with someone. So Peter withdraws fellowship from the Gentile Christians in order to save faith with the, the Jewish Christians or professing Christians. And so Peter, Paul calls Peter out on this. Why? Because the truth of the gospel was, ext- was at stake in his actions. You say, Tanner, how is that? Well, well listen, if, if God had justified these new believers in Galatia and had accepted them on the basis of Christ's work and completely given himself and fellowship to them where now they share intimacy with God, then the question becomes on what basis, if God has given complete fellowship to them, would you withhold fellowship from them? And Paul is saying, none at all. And so he says, your conduct, your actions are out of step. They're out of bounds with what the gospel would have you do. So because there was this public action on Peter's end, Paul is going to oppose this publicly in front of people so that everyone can get back on the same page. It's not on the basis of circumcision or your dietary restrictions that we have acceptance before God and with one another. It's only on the righteousness of Christ. Now you say, well, Tanner, this is nice. We're not talking a lot about circumcision today. We're not talking a lot about dietary laws, except for maybe the fact that we need to get on a diet, you know what I'm saying? Um, so, So what does this have to do with us? Here's my encouragement. Do not think you are free from this. Do not think that you are free from even understanding that justification is by faith and then slipping out of step with the gospel so that then you begin, okay, this is deep, all right, but follow me. You begin to base your justification on your sanctification. Now, what is that? Justification is a one-time act declared righteous in Christ. Sanctification is the ongoing work that God does in our lives to make us righteous, make us more like Christ. But because the default mode of our hearts is works righteousness, what we do then in our relationship with God, and this plays out in our relationship with others, is that when we have a bad week, like maybe some of you this morning, you, you blew it. Man, you blew it with your friends. You blew it with a spouse. You blew it with God. And because you haven't walked in holiness this week, when you came through those, I mean, it's probably the reason some people didn't come to church today, just to be very practical. It's probably the reason some people didn't make it. Oh, God, I didn't have a good week. I didn't live for you this week. I'm not even worthy to come to worship. Have you ever thought like this? And then you come in the doors and you don't feel worthy or accepted to give praise to God. Or if you, if, you, if you, you know, miss a quiet time or don't do your devotionals or your prayer life is slack, then all of a sudden God is, is not as, as pleased with you. He doesn't approve you as, as much as he once did. 
That's confusing sanctification with justification. And it shows us that we all have a legalistic heart in us that has to die every single day. So there are two great arguments against the gospel of grace. One is legalism, which says it's about what I do to earn God's acceptance. Remember we said legalism is acceptance through performance. So, the, so, so these twin critiques of the gospel of grace, legalism says, no, it can't be true because I have to be righteous. I have to be righteous in order to be accepted by God. But then the other argument, the other critique against the gospel of grace is this. It's, it's called licentiousness. It means uh, to have license to do whatever it is that we want to do. So the licentious person will say, no, it can't be because if it's of grace, I can do whatever I want to do. Do you see that? I mean, if God is so gracious and he's forgiven me of all my sin, then I can just live however I want to live because God's going to forgive me. And so that's some people's arguments. I still hear this today, and Paul certainly heard it in his day, who said it can't be of grace because now we can live however we want to live. Let me just say this. This is going to startle you. The gospel should sound too good to be true. The gospel should sound too good to be true. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in England from the last century, he said this, if you don't preach the gospel of justification by faith in a way that people ask, can I keep sinning, you probably have not preached the doctrine of justification by faith. This was what people said to Paul, Romans 6, verse 1. Shall we continue to sin that grace might abound? God forbid, by no means. And this is what we see in verse 17. Look at this. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And Paul answers that objection, and he says, certainly not. So in other words, if, if through being justified in Christ, you are still a sinner, and, and you still have sin in your life, then is, is Christ pro, a proponent of sin? Does, does he encourage your sin by forgiving your sin and, and making it on the basis of justification? And so Paul's answering this charge, and he says, absolutely not. Which teaches us the gospel should also compel us to die to the law and die to our self. Verse 18, he continues, and he basically says, my sin is on me. Look in verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, if I rebuild what works righteousness that I, that I tore down, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. I prove myself to be a sinner. So Paul is, again, trying to hammer that it's not through moralism, it's not through behavioral change, what some people reduce Christianity down to, which is not at all, okay? It's the gospel of grace that changes our behavior. It's not moralism that will save a person. This is not what we're trying to, to rebuild and promote. That's simply sin. That sin is on us. 
And so then in verse 19, he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. In other words, never ever go back to righteousness based on your own merits, your own works, your own righteousness. You're dead to that. Don't go back. Don't slip back into that. Die to the law. And number two, die to yourself. Verse 20, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, worthy of your memorization. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This gets at our union with Christ. When someone places their faith in Christ, everything that is true of Christ is now true of them. They are in Christ and Christ is in them. So that Paul would even go so far as to say, I no longer live. And that doesn't mean that it's the end of Paul's personality. Okay, when someone receives Christ and trusts in him, they don't become an altogether different person in terms of their personality if they were out, outgoing or maybe more reserved, okay? But what happens, what Paul means is that our personality is not what changes, but our desires change. Our, our, our life changes from the inside out so that now, man, I'm not living for myself and my own desires, but now I'm living for God and his desires. The life I live is about him, which accords with what Jesus says in the Gospels. Remember, we just went through the Gospel of Luke. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So what Jesus is inviting people to in the Gospel, which is what we want to invite people to at Redemption Hill Church, is this. Come, die, and give yourself away. Come, die, and give yourself away. If you want to be in with Christ, this is the only way. Come, die, and give yourself away. Give yourself to him. And this is what we want to say as a church. Listen, if you want to be in with our church, then we want to follow Christ. And to follow Christ is to say, we are dead. We are coming to him. We are dying, and we are giving ourselves away. If you're not looking for that, if you're not looking for biblical Christianity, Give us a few weeks. Please talk to us. Let us try to convince you that that's the way to go. But if that's, if that's not what you're seeing in the New Testament, then this is not the church for you. But here's what I love, okay? Two things that I love, all right? Number one, I love that when we die, we actually find life. Jesus says, forever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses life for my sake will find it. We gain life. We find the, the flourishing that God intended from the very beginning when we die to ourselves and we live to God. I love that from a theological and practical perspective. And number two, from a church perspective, I love that people at Redemption Hill get this. Come, die, give yourself away. We have community group leaders who are working full-time jobs, 40 to 50 hours a week. Some are pregnant. Some are, you know, have families. Some have extracurricular activities and responsibilities outside of all of that. And they're still saying, hey, come into my home. Let me pour my life into you. 
We have people just the same who wake up 7 o'clock, 6.30, 6 o'clock. Some of you probably get up at 5.30 to be here at 8. I don't know. But, but I mean, just getting up early so that you can come and serve together as a church. I mean, people are getting this in our church. Come, die, and give yourself away. This is the life of a Christian, and this is the life of a true church. Church is God's people intentionally coming together to die so that others can find his kingdom. How about that as a definition for church? So we keep in step with the gospel. We die to the law and ourselves. So then number three, we live to God through Christ in you. Live to God through Christ in you. One of my great fears personally and for us as a church is that we would fail to live in the power that God has provided to us. This is, this is something that kind of haunts me and it, it pushes me to pray and it pushes me to examine my own life and the kind of the condition of our church. Because what Paul says is that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So if you have been justified by faith and God has made you a new person, then you have Christ in you. You have the power of God at work in you. So there's now no excuse not to live for God. You have the power because Christ is in you to exercise kindness and to beat down pride in your life. You have the power in your suffering to walk through your suffering because the one who suffered for you is the one who is now in you. And if you're suffering today in any way, there is no greater news than that. We have the power to be transparent about our sin because the one who died for our sin has critiqued it most harshly in his death so that now we can openly share it with others. You want to talk about sharing the gospel, sharing your story? We can have the freedom to share our story because Christ is in us. He moves us. He compels us to tell others about him. And we are most compelled because of his work of redemption and his great love for us on the cross. And so we must make every effort to reflect this reality that Christ is in us and we do so by what it says at the end of verse 20. We do this by faith. Live by faith in Christ. So, so how do you show that you no longer live, but Christ lives in you, you do it by a continual resting, a continual trust, a continual acknowledgement that Christ is your sufficiency. I love the quote that John gave about a month ago from Spurgeon, where Spurgeon says, I find it good to always sprinkle a few words of prayer before everything that I do. I mean, are you just like living like that this week? I mean, it's like, that's faith, friends. Like that's living by faith, acknowledging God in all of our ways, knowing God in all of our ways. Should I say that? Should I tweet that? Should I do that? It's, it's all acknowledging Christ by faith, doing everything in dependence on him, trusting in him with all things in our life. And we do this driven by the reality that Christ has given himself for us and he's loved us so much. 
So let me conclude with this. Number, number three, verse 21, and I love verse 21. I've never loved verse 21 like I love it today, all right? Promote the grace of God and boast only in the cross. Let me read verse 21 for us one more time. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So what Paul is saying, okay, please hear this. Paul is saying to try to be justified by your own works is to set aside, it's to, it's to erase, to nullify the cross of Christ. It's, it's to, to act as if Christ died for no purpose. So this is a great retort when people say, I'm gonna try to be good enough. I just say, well, then why did Jesus die? It's one thing if you're talking about that in evangelism, but it's another thing if you're kind of looking in the mirror and trying to perform your way to God's approval through legalism or, or going off the deep end and doing whatever it is you want to do because you're free in Christ and you've been forgiven, so now it doesn't really matter how I live because Christ is going to forgive me, and now you're licentious. Verse 21 should rock us to the point that it rocks the legalism out of us and rocks the licentiousness out of us, and it rocks the grace of God into us so that we can then be rocked by the Spirit of God to see his fruit flow out of us. So my exhortation, if you'll receive it in these kind of words, is to let verse 21 like absolutely rock you today. To in no way nullify the grace of God, the work of Christ on the cross, but to promote it, to show how valuable it is that Jesus has done all of this for us on our behalf. So Galatians 6, verse 14, Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray together.